the corrupt nature of power. Hello everybody and welcome to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. There is a terrific relatively new book out there about what power is, who gets it and what happens when they have it. The author is Brian Class. He's a professor of global politics at the University of College in London. The name of his book is Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. And Brian, first of all, what prompted you to write this book? Yeah, so you know, I started my career studying dictators and despots, and I went around the world interviewing some really awful people uh, in a variety of different countries. And one of the things that happened was when I came back and I told people about this, and these you know sort of depraved individuals, what people would say to me is, "Oh, I recognize those traits in my mid-level manager, or that's the same kind of person who runs my homeowners association." So what I decided to do was to to try to figure out. Whether that's true, whether that the traits that you know characterize awful people in politics, dictators, etc., are also simultaneously showing up in our lives, in the sort of more normal aspects of power, and trying to really understand why certain people gravitate towards power, why certain people are better at getting power, what power does to their brain when they get there, and also why we are drawn to all the wrong kinds of people to be in charge of us. And so the book is really looking at power, corruption, and why we end up with such awful leaders in our lives. And some of those awful leaders, I would say a lot of those awful leaders, and this is backed up by a lot of what you say in the book, are psychopaths. What is it about power that attracts psychopaths and makes them even worse? So there's this interesting cocktail in psychology known as the dark triad. And it refers to three parts, as you might expect, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy, being a psychopath. And what the research is very clear on this is that psychopaths and people with the dark triad in general are drawn to power like moths to a flame. They really covet power, they want it, they're obsessed by it. But they're also very effective at getting it. And one of the reasons for that is because functional psychopaths, by the way, dysfunctional psychopaths end up in prison, functional psychopaths psychopaths can dial down their traits. Uh, that are really, really catastrophic for their sort of behavior in certain contexts. So during a job interview, during an election, they can pass themselves off as better than they actually are. And so what you see is that during these short periods where you have to present yourself as sort of a normal empathetic individual, people with the dark triad who have manageable levels of it are very, very good at wiggling their way into power, but they're catastrophically bad at wielding power. So one of the things I argue in the book is that we only focus on half the coin, the people who are actually in power. So our headlines look at, you know, why are people in politics or business behaving badly? We don't spend enough time thinking about who never tried to get into politics or business leadership in the first place. And I think that's a mistake because one of the things that I argue in the book is that the systems that you create around these fields of power and hierarchy determine who tries to self-select into them. And right now we've engineered a society in which most normal decent people are repulsed by positions of power. So we've rolled out a red carpet to those of the dark triad. We've created systems that are really, really attractive to them. And then we help them get there because we are sometimes drawn to really awful leaders as a result of a variety of factors that, that means that we make irrational decisions about who we choose to put in charge. And the people in charge, of course, not just in politics, but in terms of our day-to-day law enforcement, it seems like police have been attracting a lot of people who seem to be on power trips or have a chip on their shoulder. And you say that the issue of police violence, that at least our society up to this point, hasn't really focused on the right issues. What do you mean? Well, I think everything in the police reform debate that I've read in US politics is about 
what the police do, which is understandable. But I think we need to think much more carefully about who the police are. So what I what I started to look at in my research was how do people recruit police officers around the world? And how does the United States differ from the rest of the world? So in this little town of Doraville, Georgia, which is about you know 20 minutes outside of Atlanta, 10,000 people. I found this video, recruitment video that was on the main page of the website a couple of years ago. And it showed these cops who were in military fatigues and camouflage fatigues driving around in literally a tank with death metal music and with the Punisher logo flashed on screen, which is you know a vigilante sort of anti-hero who basically tortures criminals. And then I compared that to what happens in New Zealand, where they've made a real careful assessment of what kind of people they want to have in the uniform. And the New Zealand police recruitment strategy is called, do you care enough to be a cop? I mean, it's the opposite of the Punisher logo, right? And what they do in their recruitment videos, they're very lighthearted, very amusing. They depict police officers that are from a diverse array of backgrounds, lots of women, lots of ethnic minorities that are underrepresented in the police. And the video depicts them rather than driving around in a tank, helping people across the street and chasing this unseen criminal that turns out to be a border collie who's stolen a woman's purse. And then it flashes the do you care enough to be a cop logo on the screen. And what what struck me in the interviews that I conducted with people in the police in New Zealand in particular uh, affirmed this is that they got different people applying for the job when they portrayed the job differently. So when you think of being a cop as driving around a tank in a tank and occupying a small town in America, the people who want to do that will apply. The people who want to get off on the power of a badge and a gun, they're gonna you know, gravitate towards it. And of course, in the US, the rates of domestic abuse within people in uniform are much higher than the average population. So we have a serious problem. And I think rather than just trying to constrain police officers with body cameras, the easier thing to get better behavior is to actually get better police officers. And that requires, much more sophisticated and thoughtful recruitment strategies than we, than we currently use in the United States. Does it also require changing the police culture in the United States? And that it seems like police officers, even the good ones, even the ones who you might say, yeah, they could help you find that old lady's bag or whatever it is, that they are trained to take control in any situation, to dominate a situation as opposed to de-escalate. And that seems to get to the other part of your book. And that is, it seems like positions of power, opportunities of power can take decent, fair-minded people and change them for the worse. Absolutely, so in, in the police in particular, I think there is a problem with cultures of violence and abuse that, that tend to self-replicate. Because if you have a partner, for example, who you collude with or embezzle with, that's going to be uh, you know something that continues into the next generation of police officers. Now, I think one of the things that would be really helpful in this situation is to think about oversight and the ways that we can try to hold police officers accountable. So I interviewed the former head of New York Police Department, the NYPD's um, internal affairs division. And what he designed was this thing called randomized stings or integrity counter, say a pile of cash on the table, a bunch of drugs, etc. And they would believe it's a real drug bust. What they wouldn't know is that there were actually cameras and microphones in this apartment watching them. And so what what ended up happening in these situations was, you know, some of the cops took the money and when they did, they were arrested or fired. Now, what was really interesting about this is that they conducted 500 of these stings, but when they surveyed the police officers in the NYP, 1000 cops said that they had been subject to one of these stings, which means 11,500 had encountered real world situations that they thought was a setup. 
And so by exploiting the power of random oversight, you can end up creating, I think, a healthy level of fear in people in power that if they do abuse their position, they'll get caught. And I wish we would do that much more with those who have the most consequential positions in our society, including police officers. You mentioned the incentives uh, that uh, the people who don't seek out power tend to be the ones that actually would do better in positions of leadership and authority. Let's take the example for, you know, you mentioned in the book, uh, condo boards or a local, you know, uh, city council. How do you incentivize people who, you know, they don't really want to do that kind of, how do you, how do you incentivize and change the system so that people who are not on a power trip are the ones who try to get into these positions? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because when you have a position that is very thankless, like being a homeowners association leader, where you're going to have to police effectively your neighbors if they don't put their trash bins out on time, there's two types of people who want to do that. One are the public minded people who think, well, somebody's got to do this, I might as well do it. The others are the people who enjoy control. And so you sort of enter this lottery in homeowners associations, which kind of person is going to dominate you? Uh, and, and I think that's a problem because we have to make it more attractive. So some of it is you, you need to pay people. I mean, if you want to have better leadership, you need to make it attractive. The other aspect of this that I think is really important is understanding what we've done to local level leadership in the United States with all of the things that come with low level power. So for example, you know, if you wanna run to be a school board member or a local city councilor in America in 2022, you're gonna have trepidation that that's going to come with death threats and harassment and crazy people showing up at your house. And that means that the people who are not power hungry will just say it's not really worth it, right? The people who are power hungry will say I wanna do this anyway because it's the payoff is the power. But we've made it, we've basically engineered a society in which those best suited to wield power are least likely to seek it and have a hard time getting it. And I think that's the real problem here where we have to think more creatively about engineering systems that attract and promote much better people into power from the local level on up. Your book found that narcissists tend to make more money and that sometimes facial appearance determines how we pick our leaders. It sort of ties in with something that I've you know, seen through the years in TV and that someone who's the happy warrior who smiles who seems to enjoy themselves is a more attractive person on TV than somebody who's always grimacing or a sourpuss. But in terms of leadership, what is it that you see in facial appearances? Yeah, so in the introduction to the book, I talk about this study that's amazing. It's it, They basically showed these kids, uh, all these images, two images in each time, uh, one face and another face. And they said, who do you think should be in charge of your imaginary ship in this computer simulation your boat? And they didn't give any other information to the kids. What the kids didn't know was that one of the faces they saw was the winner of a French election and the other face was the runner up. And overwhelmingly the kids picked the winner with no other information as the person who looked like a good leader. When they replicated the same experiment in adults, they found something similar. And so it gave you know new meaning to this idea of face value, taking someone at face value. And so I think one thing that we don't acknowledge enough is that there are non-rational things, cognitive biases we have, that cause us to gravitate towards the wrong people for the wrong reasons. I think acknowledging that is crucial to ensuring that we get better people in charge and understanding that's not always about policy when people are casting their ballot in elections. Brian, was there anything about putting this book together that surprised you in the final seconds we have left here? Uh, huge amounts of things surprised me. I think the facial study is one of them. I think another thing that, that people should check out is how the term strongman is no accident and how we have a template in our brains that sometimes causes us during times of crisis to gravitate towards physically large imposing men. And that answers the puzzle of why Vladimir Putin poses shirtless so often.
<laughs> Remarkable stuff. Brian Class, again, he's a professor of global politics at the University College in London. The book is Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Brian, terrific work and thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Election 2022, yes, it is now an election year. There's some fascinating races taking shape, including within the Democratic Party. And one of those is in Washington State. And that is where Jason Call, a former math teacher, he's a building inspector, lifelong progressive activist, is challenging the Democratic incumbent for the primary there in Washington's second congressional district. Jason Call, thanks for joining us. What prompted you to decide that, you know what, there needs to be a progressive challenger to Rick Larson, who has held the seat for 20 years? Yeah, uh, first, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm happy to talk to you about my race. Um, I, I've been an activist, as you mentioned, I've been an activist uh, my whole life um, since I was 19 years old when I was protesting the first Iraq war um, in, in 1990. I was a freshman at the University of Washington. And, and I think I've gone through my life um, like many people who consider themselves progressive, seeing problems that are not getting solved. And the reason they're not getting solved is because there's a ton of corruption in Congress. I mean, that's that's really the bottom line for me and so many others who are challenging the establishment right now. So, um, you know, the guy I'm challenging, Rick Larson, he's been in the seat for 20 years. Uh, this is a safe blue district. Uh, Washington is a top two primary state. Uh, so like California, like Louisiana, whoever uh, the top two vote getters are in the primary, they go head to head in the general. Um, and that's a real opportunity here. Republicans not gonna win this seat. They don't field any serious candidates. They don't put in any money into the race here. Um, and as I've been going around the district, uh, I, I've been talking to local Democratic Party organizations about the need to have a conversation in this district uh, on, on policy and on values. It's a conversation that the incumbent has been able to avoid his entire time in office, he simply runs on not being a Republican. That's not good enough anymore. Um, there are so many things on the table that need action that are not getting action. Um, he is loaded up with corporate money from the military industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, um, the banking industry. There are so many reasons we need better in this district right now. And uh, I, I believe uh, I can do this. This is the second time I've run. Uh, we almost hit the general election in 2020 as a no-name candidate raising barely $50,000. I got almost 35,000 votes in this district and we missed the general election by about 2,500 votes. We can do better this year and we're gonna win this race. In addition to what a lot of people would say is corruption in terms of our campaign finance system, in addition to the money that Congressman Larson has taken from fossil fuels and big pharma and the rest, is there specific though corruption that you would identify or tag him with? Um, well, I mean, I think when you take money from TransCanada and take money from Enbridge and and then the very next day tweet out your support of oil pipelines. I, I think that's just a, an identification of whose corner you are in. Um, he's voted for, uh, he, he sits on the Armed Services Committee, fourth ranking Democrat on the Armed Services Committee uh, and takes a, a ton of money from all of the military industrial contractors, particularly Boeing, uh, who is a big employer in this district, uh, but also Northrop Grumman. Uh, they're up for massive contracts to retool the United States um, ICBM arsenal, um, and and uh, you know he he votes for every military budget uh, uh, going, and uh, you know 
taking money from Boeing, I, I, you know, if you want a, a direct uh, a corruption that I can really feel like I can link to, um, he's chair of the aviation subcommittee of transportation right now. Takes a ton of money from Boeing, as I mentioned. Boeing had some serious problems with the IMAX, uh, uh, I'm sorry, IMAX, the 737 MAX plane. We had a couple of crashes in 2018, 2019, hundreds of people died. And as chair of aviation, he had a responsibility to regulate that industry. Well, Boeing, Boeing essentially buys off Congress people like Rick Larson to not do their job of regulation. Um, so I, I can detail that in in you know more, but really you know yeah I mean there's a pay, there's a pay to play that corporations have in Congress to get what they want that the average person doesn't get, the average voter doesn't get. And and it never works out well for consumers. And that's just one instance with, with Boeing crashes where people died, flight attendants died, passengers died. And, and there was a direct failure of oversight in that congressional committee. Well, Jason, let me turn the question a little bit. Let's just suppose that some you know major and our interest group, and let's suppose they're a progressive interest group, said, hey, you know, Jason, we love what you're doing. We're gonna form a super PAC. We're gonna pump $5 million or whatever it is into your race. Uh, would you disavow it? Would you tell them not to do it? I don't want dark money in my race. Um, I, you know, I, I would reject super PAC money. Uh, that I, I would ask people to contribute to my race directly. Um, let the FEC file show who is giving me money. Um, but no, I don't want. I don't want any kind of super PAC money, um, even if it comes from progressive groups. Uh, I, I would, you know, like I said, please give to my campaign. Uh, raising money as a progressive is extremely difficult. Um, I would love endorsements uh, from from PACs, but I don't I don't want to take their money. I'll take their volunteers um, and, and and I'll take their activism, but I don't want to take their money. In addition to campaign finance reform, I know that you're a big on a common sense gun reforms. Uh, is there particular gun legislation that you think uh, Democrats, progressives can get together on and somehow get around the Republicans in the House and the Senate? Um, it's it's a really difficult uh, thing uh, to do. You know, I passed, uh, I wrote and and passed almost unmodified um, a a resolution with the Washington State Democrats. I sat on the State Democrats uh, Central Committee for four years, um, and and wrote and passed a resolution. Um, the only thing that we couldn't get passed. Uh, was an insurance requirement for gun holders to have uh, gun insurance. And that's because uh, for the most part, insurance companies don't even offer that product. Um, so it, it, it is difficult, it's a wedge issue. Uh, it's, it's, I'll say that gun reform is not a huge um, topic in my campaign because there are so many things that like healthcare and housing um, and, and military spending um, and, and the climate. Uh, really, the climate crisis is is way up there. Also, um, that are things that we have got to um, get a handle on. And, and gun reform tends to be a very, very divisive issue. Um, I, I want to find ways to bring bring people together around it. Um, and I don't know that we really have a solution for that quite yet. I hear you. It is a difficult issue. Another thing that a lot of Democrats are seeing is very difficult political terrain. I think it's up to now, you know, twenty six, twenty seven Democratic incumbents. Uh, who have decided not to run for re-election. It looks like Republicans could take the House the way things are going, especially given the poll numbers of President Biden. Uh, you're 50 years old, you've been around for a fair amount of time, uh, a long time in, in activism. Why now, why this particular year make the decision to 
run to challenge Rick Larson? Is it because you did so well back in 2020? Is do you feel that there's something changing in your district? Well, I'll be honest with you. Um, yeah, I mean, the the fact that we did so well last year and almost almost hit that general election last year is a big part of it. Um, but there there is impetus in this district for it. I met with one of our local Democratic Party uh, organizations for about an hour and a half this last Saturday, um, and, and they're asking me all sorts of questions about policy that I feel like I have answers to. And at the end of that meeting with them, they were clapping for me and they were really feeling like, yeah, you know, at least we need to have the conversation in the district. And I said to them, listen, you get Rick and I on the ballot next to each other. Let us have some debates, let the voters decide, but we're not gonna get the debate ever unless there is an actual progressive challenger within the party. And I think that that's vital for democracy. Um, you know, as I said, a Republican is not gonna win this seat. So why not put two people, you know, it, like AOC said about Joe Biden. Uh, in any other country, Joe Biden and I would be in different parties. It's the same way with me and Rick Larson. We would be in different parties if we were in a different country. But here we are, we're in the same party, we're on opposite ends of it. And I think the voters of this district really deserve that conversation. Tell us about some of the key dates. First, uh, the primary, and then assuming you get into the, you know, you're the top two, uh, then there's the general election. Um, tell us the sort of phases of this election. Well, I filed for the seat in May, third week of May is when all Washington candidates file. Primary is gonna be the first Tuesday in August, um, so that is the third. I believe, and then you know, on to the general, and we hopefully we get a good three months of good solid debate in the district, and and we can make that happen. If you could have this direct debate with Congressman Larson, what are some of the key issues, the key arguments you would make to him when, you know, if you've given the opportunity to say, hey, you have failed the district for the following reasons, what would you say? Well, first of all, you know, and this is this is not just Larson, but he's part of it. The Democratic Party uh, is not doing enough uh, serious on climate change. I think COP26 was was a joke. You know, when Nancy Pelosi and and Frank Pallone sit in front of people and they say, yeah, the military is pretty much exempt from all of these agreements that we make from COP26, and the military is the you know if we ranked the military as a state actor, it would be somewhere around the 25th largest polluter in the world. Um, the fact that we're not we're increasing those budgets that the, the build back better is about 7% of military budget in terms of spending it's not enough um, and he's out there saying that this is you know this is the most we've invested in climate ever well that may be the case but but 10 times nothing is still nothing uh, we've got to do substantially better it is the critical issue of our time uh, right now to make sure we are reducing emissions you cannot do that if you're taking money from the military industrial complex and the fossil fuel industry that is not your priority so that's one thing that I would hit him hit him on right away. The other thing that I would hit him on is Democrats want Medicare for all. I was a big part of writing the Washington State Democrats platform. Medicare for all is in our state platform. It's in my county platform. It's in many county platforms. He has flat out said multiple times he will not support a single payer program. I want to know why. It's what Democrats want. It's what the majority of Republicans want, and it's what is needed. What if he says? I think he has in the past. He said, we, we, we said in the past we, we simply can't afford it. Um, we, it's too expensive to go to Medicare for all. That's his, been his argument and the argument of other people who are opposed to it. It's too expensive not to do it. We can cut out the middleman. We don't need to. We don't need to have exorbitant CEO salaries. I'm not interested in shareholder profits. I'm interested in good health policy, and we're not getting it right now. Hmm. Uh, Jason, for people who want to help support you, what do they do? Is there a website? What's the best way to, to contact you and 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 tell us a little bit about your district? What part of Washington State does it encompass? 
Sure. The second district goes from um, the Snohomish King border, which is, you know, King County is where Seattle is. So uh, it goes from the border up uh, the King County border up to the Canadian border, includes the big islands in the North Puget Sound. Um, you know, we got a mix of rural and urban. We've got working class and we've got wealthy. Um, we're a predominantly white district from the 2010 census, but we are getting more and more diverse. I think we're now around 70% white, which is a big increase in diversity in this district. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited to look forward to represent it. You can find me at callforcongress.com, I can see that there. And all of my socials are at call for Congress. I'm active on Twitter um, and uh, thank you so much. Jason, thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of The Conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, John Skip Velaco, and Greg, and the entire team at The Young Turks, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.